Do we have very many people this morning in our midst that enjoy watching movies? 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 Okay. Um, how many of you have watched a movie with uh, a sense of real excitement as things were building up to a climax at the end of the movie? You thought, this is going to be great. And then suddenly it was finished and you thought, that is fabulous. And then suddenly there was an additional two minutes that gave you the hint, there is a sequel coming. This is not the end. I don't know how I feel about movies like that. I go to them some of the time and I think, you know, well, or or actually I don't go ever. My sons have been very good about pointing out the fact that every movie I've seen in the last... 15 years on, has been on an airplane because uh, I was traveling so much. I got to see all kinds of movies, but it was on long flights. So I only remember the part where my brain was still functioning. The other part, I was pretty much asleep. But the point is still that uh, sometimes that, that, that preparation for a sequel is one that kind of leaves you hanging a little bit. You feel like you finished the movie, but not quite. Well, in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, verse 17, it says, For the great day of wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? You're clicking along, thinking you're beginning to get some real clarity as it's talking about these various seals that are on the scroll, giving us definition, and you think it's going to be wrapped up pretty good, and then it says, Aha, I have something else I also want to talk to you about. So today, that's sort of where we're going to go. We're going to be looking at Revelation and trying to take the next step. But I decided this week that in order for us uh, to really get a concept of where we're going, I'd go ahead and put an insert into your bulletin. Now you know, as I've confessed many times, I don't like adding extra inserts. Uh, I try my best to make this not happen, but it's just necessary in life apparently. And the insert is, de- is designed to help us go back and review. Because personally, I'm a sequential thinker. I, I, if you ask me what happened in 1995, I go back to where I was in 1995. Then I start clicking on through the months and I remember what it was. And I go through life that way, kind of having an idea of what happened. Now, my sons come from a different world, but that's they're kind of out there just grab something and run with it. It was big in their life, a big event. That's how they remember it. But what I want to present to you with the book of Revelation is is with the idea that you'd have some understanding of the future, of the present, and of the past as it's presented in the book of Revelation. So if you'll look at the insert, at the top it says January 18th, insert review. Now, if you want to really give yourself a test, you just put this in your pocket and just listen and see if you remember it all. But if you would also like to look at it, that's perfectly fine. The review is basically that in chapter 1, we can, you can read, so I'm not going to read this to you at this point. It gives a little bit of broader definition to the idea that to the church, in the future, there's a great day coming because Christ is coming again. Christ has come before. He continues to work and live in our lives. And then it talks about the letters that are, that are written there in chapters 2 and 3, where, of course, it reviews different kinds of churches that existed. And those kind of churches exist until this day. 
And so there's a lot of warning in chapter 2 and 3. There's a lot of testing and challenging that goes on as it asks us to look at our own lives. Because remember, the church is us. It's not just an organization over there to the side. It's not just a building. The church is the people of God. So the challenge when you look in these is to find out, have we truly allowed our first love When we became Christians, it was the most important thing in our lives. Is that still true today? Does our walk with Christ guide our decisions? Does it keep us from saying negative things about other people? Yesterday we were in a leadership meeting here. And one of the comments that, that, I won't say that was made because I made the comment, I confess. Is that my, my burden is that our church, as we go into 2015, is a church that doesn't spend a whole lot of time criticizing efforts and ministry attempts, new things that happen in a negative way. That we give people the benefit of the doubt for the fact that they want to use their interests, their skills, their ideas for serving God. I hope that our church will become more and more creative getting us outside of our building, getting outside of our comfort zone. My dream is that we would push ourselves to be effective tools for the kingdom. Well, chapter 2 and chapter 3 go through and challenge and they say that these are the kind of churches that exist. There are dead churches that think they're alive. There are churches that originally had a great relationship with God and that's not the case today. There are good and healthy churches that can be found who are very patient and hold on through difficult times. There are churches that are neither hot nor cold. And we know this, and you can read that, but it's a reminder as you think about what the book of Revelation is of where this goes. And it's important because in Revelation chapter 1, as well later on in the book, there are multiple times when it reminds us that studying Revelation is a good thing. Now, it never says... It's an easy thing. So if you're expecting to read the book of Revelation and come out and think that you now know it all, my expectation is the answer is you're only fooling yourself. I have a very good friend of mine. We used to talk about the millennialism, which a thousand year period. You're going to hear me present something in a few minutes about that. I have my perspective. My perspective may or may not be 100% accurate. So if you want to sit back and spend your time saying, that dumb pastor, he just missed it again. You can, but I want to say that I really don't think that's healthy for us. It's not encouraging for us. Let's just say it's one perspective. It's a different perspective from yours. But my my teacher that I had many years ago, he said, okay, there are premillennialists, there are postmillennialists, there are amillennialists, and I'm a panmillennial. He says everything is going to pan out okay in the end. Ultimately, God is in charge. So he said, I'm a pan-millennialist. And as time has gone on, I found out that I'm a pan-many things, not just pan-millennialist. Because I still believe that God is God. And He knows more than I do. I can understand Him some. I want to understand Him. But I'm not going to let it absolutely destroy me if I cannot describe perfectly all of the theology and all of my understanding of life. 
Well, as we look, we look at chapter three, one, two, and three. We see the churches and some information there. Chapter four and five kind of give us a description of when John is looking up and getting a vision of what heaven is like. And he looks and he sees the throne. He sees the four creatures. He sees the twenty-four elders. And it also gives a description of worship. And we remember that because we've already read this. But it gives a, a description of what worship was like and what it's going to be like in the future. How they bowed down before Christ and how they sang. Chapter 6 goes on. And we dealt with this last week. It has the various seals that are on the scroll that we found, found out about in chapter 5. And there's a scroll that's got all this information about the future, all these details. And the seals are there. But this is where it begins to get, make us a little nervous because in chapter 6, as you can note on here, it reminds us of the different horses. The four horses of the apocalypse. Many of you have heard of those. That's where we talk about the white horse and the black horse and the red horse and the pale horse. The one that represents death, the one that represents famine, the one that represents the Antichrist and the one that represents war. They're all in there. And they say basically the future is a fearful time. If you turn your page, on the back it begins to deal with the rapture. Now this is a perspective. You can find people who have different views. The rapture though is seen very much in the chapter in chapter 7 as a salvation chapter for the church. It's a time to say, okay, I know you've gotten a little nervous here because I've given you six seals that all look pretty bad. As you've looked at those other seals up there, we see war is coming, the wrath of God is coming. You know, again, last week we spoke some about the wrath of God. I feel very uncomfortable talking about the wrath of God. God's displeasure with this world. On the other hand, I've got to get balanced in my own understanding to remind myself, again, going back to that term, righteous indignation. Our God is righteous. He can only put up with our poor behavior so long. And at some point, there will be that day when God says, enough. So when we look at the sixth seal, up in chapter 6, and it talks about the wrath of God. We shouldn't look at that and say, that's not the God I understand. It may not be the God you understand, but it is the righteous God who has a right to say, enough is enough. You know, it's been interesting in life. I've watched many people talk about Christians and their perspective. And Living in Asia, I've had some of their perspective of Christians is Christians are all these nice, sweet, soft-spoken, never say anything loudly, just very gentle people. We do the same thing with God. We say, this is the kind of God I want. But in fact, Christians need to have a backbone. There are times when we see things that are just sinful. They're wrong. The question is, do we dare to say they're wrong? You know, we know if we say that's not right, that people are going to say, who are you to judge? You're so closed-minded. 
When do we stand and when do we allow things to go by? Chapter 7 says to the church, the wrath is coming. There will be a day God will say enough. But chapter 7 says, let's talk about the rapture. So I've got some words on this page that I hope will assist you a bit before I move into the actual sermon. The, the word rapture is the removal of the Christians from that environment, from the world in which we live. Some of this is, comes from the interpretation out of the Scriptures. If you'll read this part with me, it says, The church, all Christians throughout history, will be raised from the earth to meet Christ in the air. That's from 1 Thessalonians. Prior to the seven years of tribulation. This is prior to second coming. Now, if you don't quite get that, look at the picture at the bottom. Hopefully, the picture at the bottom will assist you. At the bottom of the page, you see a cross. The cross kind of represents our day-to-day, the church age. When the church exists and the church is out there, we're able to do evangelism. We're able, in Christ's name, to step forward and present His message to the world. From that time, though, there will be a time when, according to Scripture, Christ will come back for His church. That's a rapture. It's when He comes. He doesn't come all the way to, here to, to spend time in, in this world, but He comes and He takes the church away and takes them out of the terrible environment of the six seals and the seventh seal, which gets even worse because the seventh seal is what we're going to begin to deal with next week. The details are going to get very, very unpleasant. But we need to understand it. And the Scripture says we're blessed because we do. It doesn't mean you have to be a theologian to pull it all off. But in a sense, we all are theologians. Because theology just simply means it's the study of God. And every person in this room desires to understand as much as we can about who God is in our own lives and who He is in His walk with us. The Great Tribulation, chapters 8 to 18. This is going to be a further description, again, talking about the results of the seals because we're going to begin to see what it's going to be like in this world. It's going to be very frightening. It's going to be very disappointing. You won't want to be here. The good news is because of the rapture, you probably won't be. That's a good thing. Second coming of Christ in chapter 19. Then there will be a day when Christ returns with His church. The Nicene Creed says, He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. Pretty clear statement. Pretty clean understanding. Then the chapter 20, the millennium. Now, the reason I'm giving you these words is because we talk in a few minutes. I want you to have some clue where I'm going. The millennium is a period of a thousand years when Christ will on the earth reign. And this is seen as the age of, uh, uh, of golden day. Well, I would call it golden days for the church. If you again look at the, the um, model at the bottom. It goes from the church age being the cross to Christ coming for His church. Then you have the tribulation of seven years. 
Those are the difficult days. There will be people, non-Christians in this world, who will be making decisions still for Christ. People deciding to... But those who were Christians at the earlier time will already be not present. And then after seven years it says that there will be a second coming. And that is the second coming of Christ as He comes back to our world. And then you have the millennium of a thousand years. And then you have the last judgment. And that also will be a very significant time. And that's found at the, toward the end of Revelation. Today, I'd like for us to recognize that chapter 7 is, is somewhat an, uh, a break chapter. Because chapter 6 deals with the six seals. Chapter 8 begins with the seventh seal. But in the middle... I guess that in John's description, it sounds like things were clicking along and things were getting so heavy and so responsible and so negative. He recognized, and for some reason, it was time to say to the church, now folks, I'm telling you bad things, but put your heart to rest. Put your heart to rest. Don't worry, there's still hope for you. You're still going to be okay. So he comes back and he says, you have the rapture to assist you. Chapter 7 is a break in the, the, the seal presentation. Uh, it's good news for us. It's an alternative path for his family to avoid the pain and the destruction that we find in the seven seals. Chapter 7, verse 1 says, After this I saw the four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to... to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. It was a temporary controlling of the events that we saw as we described in seal number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. It temporarily held back the wrath of God. It temporarily held back the war that was coming. It temporarily held back the famine that we see. Chapter 7, verse 2 says, Then I saw another angel. So this is angel number 4. Now do understand the description, by the way, in chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, of, of the four corners of the earth. It doesn't mean that this is trying to describe the world as being flat. That's not the meaning. So if you try to go there theologically or in any other way, that's not the... We do recognize that the book of Revelation is, is a, an apocryphal descriptural um, a, a, a scriptural book that is intended to bring us uh, through symbolism and, and, and things like that a, a, an understanding of the picture of, of what God is, has in mind for the future. It means that it is not uh, so clearly written that it says every one of these things is a literal definition. They're symbolical. And when it talks about the four corners, it's saying it the completeness of the world was in the hands of these. And these four angels had been given the authority, as we will see, uh, to do, to use those tools that are found in the seals or to allow those to be set free. But it says at this point they're held back for a time. Then I saw another angel, 7-2, coming from the east. Now, the east has always been tied to, to God's coming. The east is, a, is very much symbolized with uh, relating to God and His actions. Uh, having a seal of the living God. 
And he called in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. He says, don't do it. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on their foreheads of the servants of God. You know, many of us, we talk about seals or, or marks. We talked about the mark of the beast. You know, if, if you go out and see a movie, I've seen many more movies that tend to be that leaning than anything. You know, and they will talk about the 666 on the forehead. According to the Scripture, there's also a mark of the Christian. There's an identification with the Christian. Um, I don't know what your experience has been in trying to understand our, our identification as Christians, but I think that sometimes our identification and our walk don't match very well. When you go back in history and you look at uh, a thousand years ago, we were dealing with the Crusades where so-called Christians were wearing their clothing with a cross on it and going to certain areas all across Europe and northern Africa and uh, attempting to force people who were of a different faith to become, or to say at least, that they were Christians. I don't really know what the faith level of those who went was. I don't doubt that some were dedicated true Christians. At the same time, I don't doubt that some were warriors who went in the name of Christ to pillage and plunder and to attempt to force the Muslims of that area, to become followers of Jesus in name. The problem is, in name is not enough. And you see, that's talking about something that happened a thousand years ago. But in fact, in our day here, we need to daily evaluate ourselves and ask ourselves, is my behavior truly the behavior? of one who walks with Jesus as Lord. You know, we love to use that word, Jesus is Lord. love to sing about Jesus as Lord. But do we really allow Him to assist us in our thinking, our values, and our morals, and how we relate to other people? What is our burden for other people? Is it that we, we, our burden is that they think we're smart? or that they want to follow us and be our good friend? Or is our burden that they would really have an opportunity to follow Jesus as their Savior and Lord? So our identification, there's an identification mark for the Christians so that they will be clearly, cleanly tied to Christ. In verse 4 it says, Then I heard a number that were sealed of 144,000 of Israel. And then it lists, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000. Now, there are a couple of views on this, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time in here on a Sunday morning talking about various views. But in one of those views, it says that the 144,000 were actually Jewish Christians. Then it goes on in verse 9. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, every tribe, people and language, now, we're going to have to realize this thing of racism that we sometimes find ourselves in the midst of may as well stop now. 
there's going to be a day for Christians when we're going to be with people that got just about every color we can imagine. Because indeed, as the Scripture says, every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne in front of the Lamb, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. They were worshiping as a family. And who they were racially, no matter what language they spoke, so if you're Mandarin, it's not great, don't worry about it. God will figure out a way to either make it the same language or we'll have better language skills than we've got today. But it's a great time to look at this group come together. And like I said, there's one view that says 144,000 were Jewish Christians and the multitude that are mentioned here were the Gentile Christians. That's one perspective. So that way it allows where it describes they were beyond number the Gentile Christians, that sets that number out as broadly as it wants to go. Now, there's a second view that says that the number of 144,000 is simply a description of the universal church and that that is one of those numbers in the Scriptures that is intended to say massive, massive people. Talking about all Christians. Either way, the key for us in our understanding of this is to understand that God is in control. Many people that go camping in the book of Revelation will spend day after day trying to understand what the tree is. Or what, I mean, each and every one of these words, you can go camping there if you like, but it may not be of any great benefit. For our reading today, our purpose is to remind ourselves that God is in control. The vision of the ceiling does not apply to Jewish Christians alone, but to Christians, all Christians. It is not a protection. You know, we must remember that the ceiling is not a protection designed for these people because when the tribulation comes, they won't even be there. This body of people have already been raptured. They're already out of the picture. They're wearing white robes. They're okay. No problem. So it's not a protection device. Verse 10, Salvation belongs to our God. He sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne. They fell down and they worshipped God. Amen. Again, we see a picture of what worship is going to look like. If you don't like this kind of worship, you either better prepare or just be very, very flexible. Because we saw in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we see it again here. Simply the idea that when we get before the Creator God, a natural humbling will occur. That we will get down in such thanksgiving that we're even there. The miracle is we'll be there. Not that you earned it. Not that you deserved Not that you put out all the effort. Not that you in the church were working this committee or that committee or whatever. The miracle is just that God still would allow us because of the blood of Jesus. Because of dependency on Him to be able to be there to worship. Chapter uh, 7, verse 13. Then one of the elders asked, Who are these folks in the white robes? And John said, Sir, you know. And then they said, then it was stated, they, they are the ones that have come out of the great tribulation. 
They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, I don't know about you, and, my, and certainly my wife washes clothes more often than I do, but I've not spent a whole lot of time trying to wash clothing in blood to make it turn white. You know, if anything, it would go the other way. The stain would go the other way. And yet the Scripture says because of the blood of Jesus, they were wearing white robes. You want to call it a miracle? That is fine. But I think it's certainly a reminder to you and to me that it's only Jesus, only Jesus, that can make our robes, make our lives, be forgiven, be clean. And it's a wonderful thing, an amazing thing. Some people will come to Christ during the seven-year tribulation. It will not be an ideal time. Maybe they will come to Christ because they were in a worship service like this. Maybe they will come to Christ because they go to congregational life activities. Maybe they will come to Christ because they're involved in the nurturing program or the Sunday school program. But somewhere back in their minds, they're going to be aware that God cares. And you know, when they hit war, and they hit famine, and they, they see people treating each other as if they're rubbish, there are still going to be some people who say, you know, I saw one of those old books, one of those old Bibles. I remember when I was young, I used to study that. I'm going to go have another look. And there are going to be people in those horrible days during that seven-year period who are still going to repent and follow Christ in the midst of a horrible environment. You know, we've got an environment today where when it comes to worship, uh, study, Bible study, whatever, we want everybody to feel comfortable and feel good. So we try to have the most exciting this, the most exciting that. We try to attract people. What will be the least barrier that they'll have to go past in order to fall into the kingdom of God? But when I look at Revelation, for those people during that tribulation time, nobody is selling cheap grace to them. It's not cheap. It never was. Christ, without sin, gave His life for us. We didn't deserve it. That's not cheap. But somehow, we want something simple. We want something fun, something exciting. But for those people, simple and fun won't even exist. There is no possibility. But it's just reality. Down deep within their core, they know what I heard so long ago must be true. Look at this horrible world we're in. The Christians aren't even here anymore. The church has been raptured. And we're stuck here. Is there any hope for us? Or are we all just bound for hell and that's the end of it? And some will say, whether we are or whether we're not, I am going to repent and try to step back into the hands of God. It will not be convenient. It will not be fun. It will not be comfortable. And yet, because of their spiritual hunger, these people will be brave enough to do that which is necessary. A question I have for us today, is faith without testing truly faith? Is faith without testing 
truly faith. In the earth's worst days that we live in, we've never seen anything like what it's going to be like during the tribulation. They will be tested in ways we cannot imagine. Verse 15 and 16 of chapter 7. Again, the good news. They are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Great news. The rapture. Great hope exists. Look at the picture at the bottom and know there is something good out there for the church. But again, even as we said last week, what is our responsibility today? How many of our friends do we want to have to go through the tribulation? I don't know when the tribulation begins. I have no clue. But if it began tomorrow, I have friends that I would be heartbroken over, knowing that they were going to have to go through those times of famine, those times of emptiness, those times of lack of focus. During the Great Tribulation, people will come to Christ but they'll not be able to buy or sell in an open market. Revelation chapter 13, verse 17 tells us this. The black horse's famine will reign as food will be scarce and unavailable. Christians will be marked, hunted, and attacked. Revelation. Remember, the Antichrist is in charge. The Antichrist will continue to cause trouble to all of these people. The last thing he's going to want to do is to see Christians standing up. So those who do repent are repenting into persecution. To repent. See, we repent into VCBC. We repent into the, the comfort of a society that still is somewhat tolerant of our faith. I think our society is getting tighter all the time. And there is a stance toward the book of Revelation that would take that view. That it's our society as a whole that represents part of this time frame. And yet, what we see in the Scripture, it tells us clearly there will be a day when it's going to be very horrible for those that are non-believers. Christians will be marked and hunted and attacked. Revelation 20, verse 4, paints a very painful picture. And I'll read it. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And the word of God, which had not worshipped, okay, let's see, and which had, had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark on their foreheads, uh, or on the hands, uh, or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now go back, and I want to look at, read that one more time. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and the judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them. This is the sentence. I knew I'd miss something in there. I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. The souls of men who were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. During that time, there will be people who make decisions to follow Christ 
and the price of persecution will be their lives. And not even a pretty loss. It's not going to be taking a pill and dying in a corner. For the, because they died for the Word of God, they believed the Word of God was true, they believed it was that important, and which had not worshipped the beast. Again, neither his image nor had received his mark on their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the millennium is still coming and they too will be able to participate. The rapture of the church is a promise of God. It's a promise of his, to his church. If we believe this and we realize that we function in a lost society today, I think we should be challenged to go out and share the good news of what we know. Today, when we think about our identity, going back to that question, the Scripture says that they will have people who are marked 666, but there will be those Christians that will also take the mark of being a Christian. Today, are you worthy of the mark? of being a Christian? Do you live like your identity is in Jesus? Do non-Christians around you and me see us and say, He is marked. Not for Satan, marked for God. Let us allow the rapture to be an exciting thing for our future and a challenging thing for our day today. Let's pray. Father God, we come before You asking Your direction and blessing on our lives. We ask that we would appreciate what You have done for us. We appreciate that Jesus Christ's blood was shed, innocent blood shed for us. We confess our sins. We ask that You would use us differently than how we want to be used on our, our, our own basis. We function each and every day so independently and seem to think we know what we should do. God, we ask Your forgiveness for that. We ask that You would give us Your value system. Father, we would ask that we would find joy and praise and excitement in the fact that You love the church so much that it will not have to go through the same pain and suffering as so many who continue to be independent and uh, staying in, in their own abilities each and every day as they walk their walk and, and talk their talk and think of life the way they want to. Father, we do pray for our non-Christian friends. We pray that we would have love enough to care enough to open our hearts to them and share Jesus. Father, we thank you for our church in Jesus' name.